Thanks for listening to Pretty Much Pop. If you're hearing this on a partially examined life feed or through openculture.com, I encourage you to subscribe directly to Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com or by looking up Pretty Much Pop at Apple Podcasts or wherever else. If you do that, then for this, you will hear the after talk where this episode, which is nearly a full extra half hour of pop culture chatting. I also want to point out that we recorded live video for this episode. So if you're listening to this sitting at your computer or whatnot, the post for this at prettymuchpop.com will display for you that YouTube event. Please enjoy the show and happy Halloween. This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast serving up tender family drama, medical mystery, and projectile vomit in equal proportions. Today we're talking about The Exorcist, both the original 1973 film directed by William Friedkin based on the 1971 novel by William Peter Blatty, as well as the subsequent attempts at sequels ending in the current David Gordon Green film, The Exorcist Believer. I'm Mark Lintzenmeyer, also known for speaking in eerie, profane voices and emitting foul smells. I'm Al Baker, every bit as scary as my reputation, but frequently misunderstood. I'm Sarah Lynn Bruck, and after watching The Exorcist, I now know why my teenager just leaves her dirty dishes in the sink. I mean, the dishwasher is right there. My child would never do that. Wow. My name is Lauren Square, coming from Oklahoma City, and pea soup does not look like vomit. It doesn't. Nothing like it. Not at all. So that's your main beef with the the original movie. What would I you? Think, have no, used? I wouldn't say it's my main beef. It's just that, like, honestly, the effects have not dated well. The drama is good. The overall sense of dread is good. The effects have not dated well at all. Since you've gone right into like nitpicking a masterpiece movie, <laughs> can I just say I don't think the vomit is supposed to be realistic. I think it's supposed to be weird vomit because she's possessed by a, a demon who's making her. No, vomit weird it's supposed vomit. to be vomit. It's supposed to be real vomit. And that pea soup was fine for nineteen. When does movie come out? Nineteen seventy, nineteen eighty. What year was that? Seventy three. Seventy three. It's fine for 73. 2023, it does not pass a sniff test. They cut out the scene where she was eating the pea soup. That's the thing. Like, you know, it's hard to get her (laughs) to eat anything. (laughs) Al is right. The movie is a masterpiece. I love the movie. I love the dread. I love everything about it. The actual effects in 2023 do not hold up. I will die on that hill. Her face doesn't look properly mutilated. The head turning around, you can tell that's not real. I'm sorry, the effects do not hold up. This is not where I expected this discussion to start, but I, I'm really happy to disagree with you profoundly because I think the effects do hold up because... not! Firstly, because they're all practical and they all look like the makeup, the makeup on Linda Blair's face is incredible. Like all of the shaking around in the bed, all of the, all of the parts where they were clearly seriously injuring their actors look fantastic because they're genuinely... <laughs> wow! <laughs> So, so the actual injury looks great. Okay. But, oh, it looks fantastic. But the it does, um, yeah. <laughs> but the main thing, the reason why all of the effects, even though some of them like don't look as hyper realistic, maybe as a CGI, as a modern piece of CGI would do, but it all hits so much harder than any, like almost any recent horror film I've seen, because of the masterful way that the tension is built up in between all of those scenes. This was the first time that I've seen The Exorcist, and it now might be one of my favorite films. It's incredible. That was the first time you saw The Exorcist. Wow. And you watched only the director's cut, I assume, or did you? I think so, because I think it had some of the... This is another interesting thing about this movie. I know so much about this movie, because even though I've never seen it, because it's impossible not to know about the split pea soup, about the spider walk, about various things that happen with the crucifix. 
so much about the film was so surprising and, and, and thrilling just to sit through it, even though I knew so many of the key beats. A little bit of a spoiler. The Exorcist Believer, I'm, I guess I'm spoiling this. I don't love that one. I don't think it's a really good sequel to it. We, we'll get to it when we get to it. There is another movie that is out right now in the theaters. It'll come out on Shutter. It is the perfect movie to watch with this movie, but it is so deeply upsetting. We'll get there. Well, so, but okay, then practical effects aside, whether or not they work for you, what about how effective the movie is? I mean, the movie, I would argue today, is still as effective as it was when it came out. I do it agree. is a terrifying, disturbing movie. And I was just as scared watching it, knowing, and I've watched all of those, how they did this and how did they did that behind the scenes videos. And it was still just as disturbing for me now as a bona fide adult watching it as it was when I first saw it. Even more so, I think, watching it, I didn't see this film as a kid, but one of the many things which is perfect about about the original Exorcist is its really masterful use of theme. So the creators decided, like, right at the top, what is scary about this movie is going to be how everybody's faith gets shaken. That's the thing that's scary in The Exorcist. and. I think, sorry, your point was about watching it as an adult. You grow to rely very deeply on the things that you like know to be true about the world. And when those things get shaken, when your faith gets shaken in like, the things you believe politically or like about your society, it's deeply upsetting. We've seen that play out in real life over the last few years. Like When people's basic political foundations get shaken, it's really, really scary. And that's the kind of horror that The Exorcist is dealing in. And it's really brilliantly done. And I do think that The Exorcist Believer... Th- the sequel to it, the one that's out now does kind of play with that. It does kind of play with the, I don't know how deep we want to get into this, but like there's a character who is an atheist agnostic, something like that. I'm really not sure what Leslie Odom is in the film. And and he has to kind of grapple with us. So that film does try to grapple with that in the first two parts of that film. But yeah, the original exorcist for the time I'm willing to accept the effects I'm just being critical of a film 50 years after it came out. So I, I get that I'm being a little unreasonable. It is a masterpiece, however, of tension. It's a masterpiece of suspense. It really does a really good job of going to the heart of belief and really shaking that heart. It really, as a parent watching the film, it really affected me because I began to think about, wow, what, what would I do in that situation? How would I address my child being possessed right how do i kind of tiptoe that it's a wonderful masterful examination of those very real very challenging questions well i mean literally worrying about your child being possessed is not the very real very challenging question but the very real thing that is adjacent to is my child is sick my child is exhibiting behavioral issues and how helpless you can feel and i was really surprised so i started with the book on this, I had read the book as a kid. This time, there's. Hold on, hold on for a second. Have you never been around five year olds in a kindergarten class and you see those kids acting absolutely obscene? I would be concerned about my kid being possessed because those kids can be really, really over the top. I, just a couple of days ago, I was at like a Casey's little convenience store and a kid was like acting like they were legitimately like Reagan. They were acting possessed. Like it was projectile coming out of their mouth, crying, tears, snot. So I'm sorry, Mark, I disagree with you. A kid being possessed is a legitimate concern. Different age entirely. 
we're talking about <laughs> in both cases, I don't think it's an accident that this is set to line up with approximately puberty. You know, that when people become teens, now they start to hate you, <laughs> this yes. kind of stuff. Yes. But more so, like my kid has cancer or whatever, like that's right. how much of the book is presented as a medical mystery. We're going to really go into, like, it seemed like he, I know he interviewed priests and glad he went to a Catholic school and knew the background of this stuff. But it also seems like many novels, like that he talked to psychologists, he talked to medical professionals and was trying to make it as accurate as possible. Like, a, who's the guy that wrote Jurassic Park? Michael. Michael Crichton. You know, where we're, you know, so it ends up being science fiction in that sense of how would, and I guess this was based on a true story. I don't know how much he tried to adhere to the story. I know quite a few things were changed. I think he really didn't try that hard to hew to the story. But yeah, in terms of just chasing down different things and that even when an exorcist is called in, he's called in as a placebo. It's, it really is a big deal in the book. Like, could Reagan have read this part of this witchcraft book that somebody had given the mom? And so she could think that she was possessed and is exhibiting all these crazy ass things, even to the point of, oh, telekinesis. Like, well, that's been observed in normal psychological. It happens with angry teens. So that doesn't necessarily indicate a demon possession. Like there's very high standards. Even, you know, when Karis comes in, is that the first priest or is that the, yeah, he's the brooding the younger one from, yeah, yeah from the brooding younger one who has to make that determination. Is this enough to present to the authorities to call in a real exorcist to actually perform an exorcism? And there's just quite a lot of time taken in the book and surprisingly amount in the movie of like trying to establish these things. So it becomes, I think Blatty's heart is in crime drama that the one big change from the book to the movie is leaving out some of the police officer didn't really have that much of a role in the movie. Like he was there, but like it was a serious thing of him being about to solve this murder of this man who had gotten thrown out of, you know, fallen down the stairs to the point of, is Regan going to get arrested? You know, are the authorities somehow going to burst in and get involved with this? So like, that's an actual point of tension where in the movie, that's just, it's just too much. So you enjoyed the book then? Um, you know, I did. It, It really pumped along once it got going. I didn't think that the writing style itself, I mean, it, it is like Crichton, like, you know, he's not John Irving. It's not an amazing writer, not even Stephen King in terms of it being actually paced such that you just have to gobble it up. It did seem more like, you know, some of those Poirot things, those Agatha Christie things or like, unlike a movie, it's a book. Let's sit around and have a long conversation about this. Like, that's not right. the most exciting thing, but like, that's what makes books it's okay to be at a board meeting, to be at a, a meeting of medical professionals or whatever. And yeah. So Blatty and Friedkin both had like disagreements about, you know, what to put into the film. And and Blatty actually had a problem with specifically the ending. Now you guys watched the longer cut and Friedkin actually refuses to call that the director's cut because the director's cut, as far as he was concerned, was the original cut. But Blatty really wanted to have the ending be you know, end on a more hopeful, obviously hopeful note. And Friedkin didn't want that. He knew that the audience is going to be coming into the theater with their own experiences, their own belief system, and take from it what they will, and sort of trusted them to do that. Whereas Blatty didn't want that. He wanted that relationship between the priest and the inspector to give it more of a hopeful feel. There was specifically the question of whether the audience would be able to reasonably interpret evil having won 
one of them wanted it to be clear that... That evil had not won. Yeah, the author wanted that. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. I think it's a weird thing to obsess about because the sense of the ending for me was just like, yes, the threat has been vanquished, but the cost was just profound. And I don't know how hopeful can you be after watching that film. I think it's a weird thing to get hung up over. Clearly, I like the ending that Freakin had because Freakin had the right instincts as a filmmaker, right? He knows what works. So I just watched yesterday Killers of the Flower Moon. I sat through that entire long three hour and 30 minute film. And I've read the book. I know that story because I'm, I'm, I live in Oklahoma. So like, I know that, like, I know that land. I know that story pretty, pretty well. And I think that Scorsese differs from that book because he knows filmmaking instincts. And so he knows what's going to make a good film. Same thing with Freakin. Freakin was a master filmmaker. And so that is the right choice. Blatty is concerned about his book and he's concerned about the He the, also the wrote story. the screenplay though. He did, but still Freakin is the director. So he's going to have the final word. Just from what I understand that Blatty wrote the screenplay and Freakin didn't like it. So they sat down together and like went through the book and sort of rewrote the whole damn thing. Exactly. Because Freakin has that filmmaking instinct. He knows what's going to work on the screen. Whereas a writer oftentimes, I mean, you know this, Sarah, like writers are concerned about different things than like a filmmaker would be concerned about. So, you know, Freakin wants to get the story right, but he also wants to hit the audience. He wants the film to be impactful. And so ultimately, I'm going to say that I'm going to go with Freakin. I'm going to you know, say that what Freakin made a decision as far as how that story ends, that was the right decision because that's the reason why that film remains with us and is so deeply impactful still. I like it when a director, and I actually like it when an author does this too, when they trust the audience to be able to get what they need from whatever the piece, you know, the work of art is. And I did like that, you know, Freakin and Blatty both seem to be on the same page about what they thought the piece was about, which was basically good versus evil, right? And all of these other readings that we have about the fact that it's about girls and women's bodies, that it's about parenthood. All of that seemed either non-existent in Friedkin and Blatty's minds or completely secondary to the story that they thought they were trying to tell. But I love that Friedkin said that you can take from this whatever you want. It's almost like when you say, it's no longer mine. Now that it's out in the world, this is no longer mine. It's, it's yours. It's the audience's. And that's what a filmmaker typically does, right? You know, so I, I think about so, like, but you not know, always. In, no, I, I absolutely think so. I think that a good filmmaker, like a Scorsese, a Spielberg, you know, those kind of guys, a freaking like the top tier filmmaker, Spike Lee, they understand that there are oftentimes things in their film that they put in. They kind of don't fully understand why they're putting it in there, but they like to have an impulse. And so they oftentimes will say it's out in the world now. And so you interpret it the way you want to interpret it. Lesser filmmakers, I would argue, would say what I intend is what you should read. And this gets into a whole other aesthetic conversation. What I intend is what you should read into the film. But a top tier filmmaker, a Steve McQueen level filmmaker, a filmmaker who is not only just a filmmaker, but an artist as well, are going to say what you read into this film is fine. It's now in the world. You take it right. So I think that saying you read into this film and you take from it what you will, that's top tier filmmaking. That is an artist at work. And that's the reason why I think this film kind of persists. I think there's a really interesting connection we can draw here between the original Exorcist and the new one 
taking the idea of had the discussion about many interpretations. You're absolutely right, Sarah Lynn. The guys who made The Exorcist, they knew exactly the film that they wanted to make. They were hyper-focused on the themes and the tone particularly was clearly something that they saw eye to eye on. They both talk a lot about how it's really important that this is a real thing that's happening in a real house. And I think the film is like ripe for interpretive readings of all kinds, but the reason it is so that it's rich enough to be able to afford those kinds of readings is because of the clarity and artistic vision that went into it in the first place, like focused on because they're focused on questions of like faith and rationality, that informs like the depth of the conversations and the characters that are in the film. And that makes them all well-rounded and anything that's sufficiently well-rounded can be interpreted with a number of different lenses. And that's one of the things for me that just makes good, especially good movies, but good art in general. However, to take Lawrence's point, the worst filmmaker is the one who, who doesn't lean heavily enough on a core idea and instead throws the audience things that they can interpret. This seems to be especially a kind of modern phenomenon, but in The Exorcist Believer, for instance, the thing about, oh, this is a problem for all of the world's religions, or let's get someone from every single religion in to help solve yeah, this man. problem. Good point. You could write a really fucking great essay about the original exorcist, about why Catholicism, especially because we've got the exorcist too, which is batshit with tribal stuff. You could write some really interesting essays about what the exorcist says about world religion and Catholicism's relationship to world religion. But in the exorcist believer, we just get handed it on the plate and say, oh, this is just a global problem now. And it's not interesting, but it's there because the filmmakers think they need to give everything, they need to give people things to talk about to make the film interesting. When they don't, they just need to make an interesting film. I kind of want to talk about what might be seen as the least important part of these films, which is the setup. If it's supposed to be traumatic, I was saying, like your child getting sick, then establishing the relationship between the parent and the kid is important. And in the new film, they really lean on that so that the trauma is actually more, what if your kid disappears? This is the thing right. that's just, there've been so right. many movies and this right. has been returned to so many times of it just being an absolutely, I'm not really thinking my kid is going to get possessed. I'm not even thinking that my kid is going to get cancer, but disappearing is like a fucking constant thing that you're potentially wigged out about. So what did you, what did you think about them in the new film, for instance, leaning so hard on that aspect I mean, it really makes it quite different that it becomes a public event, that it invites this kind of public solution, where in the first one, the setup is she's a famous actress and she has fancy people over for parties. And I just, when starting the book, this is why my initial idea of the book was not very positive. I just did not give a shit. Like I was like, get to the okay. exorcism part. <laughs> I thought the setup actually in the new exorcist was really effective. I like the fact that our point of view parent was a dad. I like that he was also, though, a single dad. He was a single parent. And we have someone who is a non-believer. He is an atheist. And we've got that in comparison to the family with multiple children. So he's a single dad of a single child. And you've got the family who's very religious. They're part of one of those new churches. They've got multiple kids. And I like that juxtaposition. I really like seeing that comparison. I wish that they had kind of leaned on those differences more and really kind of played that out. That would have been, I feel like maybe made for a more effective movie. Again, like Al said, they would have made a decision on what this movie was really going to be about, but they didn't do that enough, you know, in my opinion, I wish that they had done that more, but I thought that the setup 
of you do worry about your child disappearing. You do worry about, and this could be literally disappearing like these girls do in the woods. It could be disappearing because they're trying out drugs or they're disappearing in lots of different ways. But that is a very real fear for parents today. Goes back to like, was it M? Piece of lorries in it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's there's, fam- there's a famous scene where a girl, girl buys a balloon and then disappears and the balloon floats away. I was just thinking how like, the terror of just having your child disappear and that being the emotional crux of a movie is nearly 100 years old. That's great. Okay, I'm going to disagree. I'm going to swerve here. In the 1980s, you had 10 or 11 like major kidnappings of little kids and they were being killed. And so when I was growing up in the 81, 82, whatever, we were able to kind of roam around and be free and parents were like off doing their own thing. I remember you used to kick us out of the house and let us kind of be outside for a very long time. Then you eventually come in. It, it reminds you like E.T. and that film and how the kids were always out. After the 1980s, these kids disappeared. And because of that, everything changed. And so now a parent's fear began being your kid being killed and kidnapped. I think that is a played out trope. It was effective in the 80s really effective in the 90s, kind of started dying off in the 2000s. And so for them to build the exorcist believer on that trope, it felt a little tired to me in the in the movie theater. Now, maybe that's me being hyper aware of that trope and like the persistence of that trope. I think that's kind of fair because it is an old trope. They didn't do anything new with it. What's admirable about it is it means that the filmmakers at least tried to connect with some part of what made the original exorcist scary, which is a focus on just a really basic fear agree but I, you're, you're right they didn't do enough interesting with it and it certainly wasn't pure or stark in the way that the the first one is even though i felt that was probably the most successful thing that they did in in the film was coming from that parent's perspective it was so good in the original film i watched that film the first one for i don't know the umpteenth time And my heart just goes out to Chris McNeil every single time. You know, I'm thinking, why is this called The Exorcist? This is about, for two thirds of the movie, it's about her, you know, and it's about her dealing with her kid and just that whole, even before they get to the bed shaking and her head turning around and all that kind of stuff, her getting all of that medical nonsense, you know, the spinal taps and the going through the MRI machines and That was just as terrifying to me as the demon possession was watching this kid go through all of that and watching the mom watch her daughter go through. I mean, I agree with you, but honestly, like, what's a better title for a film than The Exorcist? That's going to (laughs) drag. Like, that's the instant seller. That's going to drag you in. (laughs) Title aside, the films that The Exorcist, the original Exorcist, reminded me of more than any were Jaws and Erin Brockovich, because so much of the emotional drive of the first two acts of the movie, say, is Chris McNeil being systematically let down by all of these institutions, which she always assumed she could count on. That's what she believes in. Yeah, exactly. That's what she believes in. And to go back to an earlier point you made, Mark, about the the setup of this. It is kind of weird that she's an actress. That is a bit of a, an odd decision. Apart from the fact it gives a really cool way for her to be further failed by all the institutions she comes into contact with, because there's like the, the the guy who asked her for an autograph after he's just told her that her daughter's like beyond hope, and he said sorry to ask, but can I have an autograph? And that's so gut wrenching because it's she's just again, keeps being let down by all of these safeguards and she still has to be the gracious, famous person alongside all that. They're also not 
in their home. So her yeah. home is in Los Angeles, and here she is all the way across the country in a temporary spot. Actually, I hadn't really given that much thought to it, but that is kind of interesting that here they are, they are strangers in some place where they don't live, you know, and the kid is, I don't even know if the kid is going to school. I never see the kid. Was the kid in school? I don't know. I don't remember. She's got like a governess situation going on. It seems it is referred to in the book that this happens over weeks and she's like acting out at school or whatever, but it's not even, it's not even shown, but yeah, it's it's mostly that she has this tutor who's religious and who tells her about some religious stuff. Is that the woman, the um, assistant that was living with them? Is that who that was? I think so. Yeah, I think so. There's a good story reason for that to be the case as well, because it's really, it's like useful for the story that she doesn't have anybody to lean on apart from like the local police and whoever else. I imagine that in the book, it probably goes into more detail of like laying that out. But in the film, the fact that she's isolated really kind of drives home the theme that Friedkin's trying to hit. So though Mark can probably tell us more about what actually happened here in the book, the film does a really good job of kind of isolating her. And really making us kind of dwell with that isolation, which I think is a filmmaking choice, but I think it is was the right one for the film. I feel like I want to talk about Exorcist too. <laughs> As a result, the film Exorcist too. <laughs> yes. Why? Why do you want to talk about? Okay, that makes okay, you well, a heretic. <laughs> wait a second. Wait a second. Before Mark goes on this diatribe, because Exorcist Two was a bad film. Those of you who are listening understand that the Exorcist film believer that is in the film now that is in the theaters now. It is a sequel to the original Exorcist film. It does not take, don't look at Mark, don't it do that. It is ambiguous. It, it doesn't, is a sequel. It, the filmmakers have said this. It is a sequel to the original Exorcist film. And so Exorcist 2, Exorcist 3, the other two Exorcist prequel movies, those films do not come into dialogue with the new right. film. They don't come directly. into dialogue. That's real shame. No, but the Exorcist 3 is great. The Halloween like the films 3? that they were like talking the about, 3, yeah. the Halloween films that David Gordon Green made, they are not in dialogue with like Halloween 2, but Halloween 2 is like one of my favorite Halloween films. Exorcist 2 is bad, man. So I was ready for it to be just the worst thing. I saw it many years ago, probably as a young adult, not as when I saw the, the original, but there were images in that that stuck with me. I guess it is known for... The director is very visual, so there are a bunch of images that are kind of cool. This goofy sci-fi, for some reason, I find a little compelling of, okay, we're going to bring you down. We're going to hypnotize you. Let's bring you down to my level. You, Your tone is going beep, beep, beep. Bring it down. Doop, doop. Now we got to match. We got to match our tones, and therefore we're in ESP with each other. What a silly setup that then is sets this thing for the whole movie of, you know, why this Richard Burton is psychically connected to the grown-up or slightly grown-up. There's a lot of psychedelic stuff in it, but it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be, even moment to moment. It wasn't as boring as I thought it was going to be, but that's not saying much. It's just quite perplexing, really. It's definitely a bad movie, but I I think it's worth watching just because because it prompts so many questions about why they made that movie. Because the first one was so successful. Well, yeah, but then why do that? Because it wasn't like it was the easiest. Listeners, I disagree with. It wasn't Al, a lazy I disagree film. With Mark, do not watch it that was... second film. Don't do it. <laughs> just don't do it. It is so bad. I it mean, just so compared bad. to something like Wishmaster or you know these 
there are many, many bad, <laughs> bad horror movies that just have nothing <laughs> interesting about them. But this one has some interesting, I mean, even just seeing this bizarre performance of Richard Burton. Wow. How a drunk, actor, how drunk were you? A, a good actor. <laughs> <very nice performance>. <laughs> <laughs> and that they brought Sarah's bringing up her governess because they couldn't get the mom to come back. But the governess comes back and dies in a hilarious way. <laughs> really, yeah, there's just some really interesting moments of this man falling off a cliff and sort of bouncing between uh, platforms. <laughs> so and this being like a really important <laughs> plot point that somehow the guy has to find his body. Just crazy. <laughs> but yes, Exorcist dear, 3. Dear listener, dear listener. I did watch Exorcist watch 3. It. Yeah. Give us your take on that. Oh, that's a good one. My biggest takeaway from that was all of the uh, cameos that were in that. So I wrote them down. Did you know that Fabio was in that? <laughs> yes. Absolutely knew it. C. Everett Coop. Samuel. Larry J- King. Patrick Ewing. The great Patrick Ewing. Sam Jackson. A number of like crazy cameos of people showing up as like angels and stuff. That movie just, I found completely bizarre and weird and supposedly, and it was also written by Blatty and directed by him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was a, supposedly a direct sequel. I mean, it was... Strangely recast. Like, you can't get the same cop actor. I, you have to have put George C. Scott. George C. Scott. I mean, of course, George C. Scott is legendary. So, like... Yeah, he's a great yeah. actor. I have no he problem with that. He was absolutely chewing up the film. scenery. The Exorcist 3... It has flaws, to be sure, but it has yeah. one of the best like scares of all of the Exorcist films. Like it so is which, legitimately, yeah. The in the hospital, mm. <laughs> you guys are making motions. Most people are not watching the video. There is there is <laughs> some pincers that chop off people's heads that are used. Liberally. But instead, the cinematic context of that jump scare is like Hitchcock level brilliant. They make you sit through a, like a t- it feels like a ten minute long <laughs> shot of a hospital corridor where nothing is happening <laughs> and you go through every emotion like wait to say is something going to happen is this a is this a freak out are you just trying to bore me what on it? and then there's this incredible snap zoom and yeah it's terrifying that was terrifying is it terrifying I don't I know I was that. just impressed by it I think it terrified me now I don't know I if it scared. would terrify me again scared. but it terrified me the first time I saw it <laughs> I've only I seen it like just three, three, once I, actually I lied I've seen it multiple times but I, it terrified me the first time I saw it What's puzzling is, again, Blatty creating these, he likes the mystery genre, creating mysteries where there really is no mystery. Like in The Exorcist, you know that she's possessed by a demon. So all this, the police and the medical people and the psychiatrists going through things to finally admit what the audience has known from the second minute of the film. And in this thing, it was, oh, who's committing these murders? Obviously, it is the demon and the demon can possess people. So... Isn't that just a kind of horror writing? The way you were just—I've not read The Exorcist, but the way you're describing it reminded me of Lovecraft stories, where it usually starts with like just some hard-bitten private detective investigating something apparently mundane, and then it's slowly revealed that it's beyond everybody's comprehension and therefore horrible. Isn't that what's going on? So, like, yeah, you, we the audience know that it's eventually going to be a demon, but isn't the point? to watch George C. Scott slowly realizing that it's a demon. (laughs) What did you folks think of that in terms of, I mean, he's having, right, the greatest parts of it is when he's talking to this patient who it turns out 
you know, it's the same actor who is the priest who you think is dead at the end of Exorcist One. Right. At some point, there's the exposition dump of of how his brain regrew, and that thought found very ridiculous. But just the fact that then somehow he's possessed, not with a demon directly, or at least not all the time, but with the spirit of a serial killer. So it turns out like one of these cop serial killer things. Who is the actor that plays the serial killer? He was also chewing up the scenery. He was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He looked like he was going to have a great time, actually. Brad Dourif is describing with glee the fact that George C. Scott is interviewing this person whose face he should recognize, according to this, right. but yet... Part of the time seeing, you know, it's not just Brad Dorf's voice or something, but like you see what you want to see or you see what the demon wants you to see, I guess. So this case from his past that's come back. There were definitely moments from both that film and The Exorcist 2, in particular, the many bottles of blood from The Exorcist 3 that like stuck with me like, oh, I have seen this movie at some point 20 plus years ago because that's some crazy stuff. The Exorcist 3 is... Okay, it's a better film than Exorcist 2. It's not a great film. It has good moments. I think that the George C. Scott performance is really good. But honestly, George C. Scott, like, he's never really bad. But without a doubt, you could live without watching the Exorcist sequels. Like, just live without those. Stick with the first one. Don't even watch Exorcist Believer, to be honest. I was really disappointed by the new film. Just stick with the Exorcist. That's really giving you what you want. Really, if you want a really good double feature, there's a film out now called Evil Lurks. It's an Argentinian film. It's going to come to Shudder on October the 27th. Now, that is a really good double feature with the original Exorcist. That's the really only film that I would argue. Now, I want to warn you, it's a mean film. Warning, kids die. But it is a great film. It is a really good, disturbing film to watch with The Exorcist. Because The Exorcist kind of started a number of different kind of films where people are being possessed. And there's like found footage films about people being possessed. There's like standard films about people being possessed. I don't love any of the ones that I've seen. The only one that I would argue would be this new one that's kind of out now. And that's just happenstance that is out now. I'm, I don't love possession films anymore. A little while ago, maybe it was Halloween last year, we talked about the Halloween film franchise. And what's his name? Something Gordon David Green. David Gordon Green, yep. David Gordon Green was right. the director of the new Halloween movies. And I remember you absolutely hated all of them pretty much without exception. I think I found some redeeming features in them, but we'd have to talk about that. I wondered, Lawrence, whether you think, like David Gordon Green, did he butcher The Exorcist more or did he butcher Halloween more, in your opinion? I wanted to ask you that question. Oh, boy. Okay. I'm going to say he butchered The Exorcist more. Because that 2018 Halloween film is legitimately good to me. I really enjoy that film. Halloween Kills is not as good as that, but it's not like a terrible film. Now, the Halloween Ends thing kind of falls off a cliff for me. But The Exorcist, like he, just, he does a pretty good job of evoking the feeling of the original Exorcist film. Like, so... The new Exorcist film begins with like dogs fighting, which is kind of a little bit of a callback, but he doesn't do a good job of telling the story the way that the Exorcist film tells the story. This new Exorcist film is already a success. It's already going to be a sequel to it. You know, it's already going to do what it needs to do. So we'll see what he does moving forward, but I am not at all confident that he's going to kind of hold up because the original Halloween film, like the, the very, very first one, the John Carpenter one, 
it's a good film, but it's not a masterpiece. The Exorcist is a masterpiece. And so for him to follow up the Exorcist, he has to really be firing on all cylinders and he's just not. And so there's a little bit more of a forgiveness when it comes to Halloween that there is no forgiveness, at least with me, with the Exorcist, because it doesn't matter if you like horror or not. The Exorcist is a good film. So for him to fumble as bad as he did with this Exorcist Believer film, he fails on this one. You know, he's going to do a new Citizen Kane trilogy. <laughs> that is a terrible joke. And if he were to do something like that, I would I would go up to him and punch him. I would punch him personally. Casablanca a trilogy. <laughs> I wonder if The Exorcist, I had heard with Believer, because they had made it during COVID, they really had to protect Ellen Burstyn because she's like 90. I'm betting it kind of screwed up with the plot because her character just got such short shrift. I mean, I just, I was so looking forward to seeing her and the way that they had set it up was that she was going to be a major player. And I wonder if it's Exorcist is just not the believer movie is just not as successful as the new Halloween's because they were able to use Jimmy Lee Curtis in a more successful way. I don't know. I was surprised she was in it as much as she was. I had heard that she didn't want to do it. She didn't want to do it. They paid her a lot of money that she gave to Good, charity. I'm glad she got paid. And so that she would just show up for a couple scenes and that's what I expected. So they paid her so she could set up an acting scholarship, which is really neat. There you Is go. it really? Oh really? Yeah. That's what she wanted the money for. She got stupid, stupid money off them so that she could set up an acting scholarship, I think, at the college she works at. Good. I did not dislike the movie. As a movie-going experience, I went to the theater during the day. I was the only (laughs) person in this small theater. Oh, my God. So I felt like I could pull out my phone if I wanted. I'm not going to bother anybody, but I mean, I'm not going to say I was super gripped, but like compared to my experience watching the two prequels, which were actively boring, I was not bored during this. I feel like, you know, there's a light on that there's an intelligent filmmaker who is trying to figure out, you know, a set of filmmakers who are trying to figure out how to respond to the material, how to not make the exactly the same movie, but how to make as much of the same movie that people would not complain. One thing I didn't, we didn't mention with The Exorcist 3, Blatty was forced to add in an actual exorcist because it was all about George C. Scott solving this thing. And so like after he had cut it, they said, no, 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 you got to actually have an exorcism in there. So they like use this priest character who's a minor character to have him come in and get killed in a, a goofy effect laden way. Anyway, people, audiences are expecting something. And I think David Gordon Green and them know what they're expecting. And so we're trying to do, I don't know, I'm seeing it from their perspective. Maybe it's impure. <laughs> There's an interesting related point to that story. Is it didn't Blady not want to call it an exorcist movie at all? The third movie was based on was called Legion. Right. I think the story was that he didn't want it to be called an exorcist movie. That was studio pressure too. And then once it was an exorcist movie, it had to have an exorcist in it. And I wonder if that just says something about, because the problem with rebooting, just like Lawrence said, the problem with rebooting the exorcist, which doesn't apply if you're trying to reboot Halloween, is the same issue that you have if you're trying to reboot Star Wars, which is that one of the films in that franchise just happens to be one of the best films ever made. And it's not David Gordon Green's fault that he can't make a masterpiece <laughs> under these conditions but then maybe just don't just do something else but you got to make sure people go and see it and that's why this fucking film exists 
I mean, to be honest, I think David Gordon Green is a really talented filmmaker. When you look at the other stuff he's made, like George Washington or whatnot, he's really good. He's a really good... Pineapple film. Express. A Pineapple Express. <laughs> he has right. really good filmmaking. Why are y'all laughing? That's a good movie. I rather does, disagree. He does, but yeah, he's done comedies. He has good filmmaking instincts. If he wants to do horror films, which he clearly wants to do, make an original film. I would like to see him do a really trashy horror film because the best thing, let's talk about Pineapple Express because it's not a great movie, but it's a very, it's very good at being the kind of movie Absolutely. that it is and it knows exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. And I think the guy, like the problem is he's always got this huge, like monolithic, like not even films, they're just ideas in the pop culture that he has to live up to and it's impossible. I'd like to see what happened if he didn't have to take himself so seriously. The Halloween films are an entire ethos i mean they are huge films the exorcist is one of the best movies ever made so to make a sequel to that you're tackling too much like make a smaller good film i feel like we're being really harsh on him because we're comparing him to the fucking exorcist like like make (laughs) a good film that is not a sequel to a great film and you'll get all the lauding and all the praise that you want now the Exorcist Believer has made $107 million on a $30 million budget. It's a huge success, but it is not as good as it could be. And it's because we're comparing it to the original Exorcist. Go back to making good films. I'm picturing if the Pineapple Express was a Cheech and Chong next generation movie so that Cheech and Chong were in it a little bit, but then it mostly went to our characters that we... <laughs> <laughs> and then and then they show a little just for branding purposes because Cheech and Chong is such a huge draw on the culture. Is it really? No, is no, Cheech no, 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 no. Having having a huge draw on stoners. Having having those stars that were in that was the you know the Apatow is a is a franchise in itself. Like you don't yeah. need you don't and need he that. And, okay. yeah, Absolutely, he was but. definitely part of that. Well, I think that my biggest problem, and I can't even believe I'm saying this out loud with Believer is that it wasn't very scary. Like I hate horror movies. I dragged a friend of mine to go with me to see this so I wouldn't have to be in a movie theater by myself. (laughs) And it wasn't very scary. I was like almost disappointed in it. Did you guys find it very scary? No, uh, no. But to be honest, I wasn't very scared by the first Exorcist. Like it's not a... No, it's a disturbing film. It's a disturbing... Exactly. That's it. That's it, Al. It's a disturbing film, but it doesn't scare me. I counted two jump scares in the first film. I think there's two. There's the torch and her like jumping on the ceiling, like something, something that she does. Like she's, oh, the spider walk. Yeah. yeah, the spider walk. That's it, right. And so I didn't expect the exorcist believer to be scary in the way that I would expect Halloween to be scary. But I did want it to be very creepy and very disturbing. And it wasn't that either. Not to me. As I was leaving the theater, I felt disjointed. And some of it, was social anxiety that being in a movie theater on a weekday at 4 p.m. with it's only you and the employees there is sort of terrifying. It's sort of a socially for me. Yeah. I could not feel I could not get out of that space quickly <laughs> enough. Okay, David Gordon Green. Here's your Thursday pitch. for me. That's that's nothing here's, big at all. That's, that's a Wednesday or a Thursday for me. Here's your David Gordon Green horror mo- original horror movie pitch then. A film critic goes to a uh, screening of the latest horror movie Thursday afternoon and everyone everyone starts acting weird. And it's, I don't know. That actually is not a bad idea for a movie. <laughs> all, the, all the characters come to life. But this sounds like after talk creativity. Does anybody have any 
closing thoughts here. We actually got through something and did not spoil the ending of this new movie. That is amazing for us. <laughs> I don't think it's worth spoiling. It's not very good. I'm, I, here's what I'll say. The Exorcist, the original film, is a masterpiece. It doesn't matter if you like horror or you don't like horror. It is good. The Exorcist Believer is pineapple candy compared to the original pea soup. Pineapple Express Assist. There you go. There is what it is because it is not good. It is not a good film. And, and, and it has good filmmakers. It has good writers. The cinematography is good. The acting is good. Everything is good about the film except the actual movie. Good people. It is not good. And I wish that he would make a good film. This guy's a good filmmaker and he's just like pissing away his talent on making legacy sequels. Like I want him to make a good film. My closing thought, I think exorcism as a plot device is problematic because it's basically magic. So what determines whether it's successful or not? Is it just, does the priest have enough faith? Is that, you know, so it seems like in the original Exorcist, to spoil the ending, it is sort of given a trick of like, you can't actually beat the devil. You can't actually just say words and have the devil go away. But if you goad the devil into jumping into your body and kill yourself, that's a a loophole. And Exorcist 3 has a similar kind of a loophole that I don't completely remember the details of. But yeah, so they had to think of their own loophole in the new movie, which ended up being a moral choice on someone's part that was sort of a trick. That's not really a spoiler because it's so abstract, but like they had to come up with something and it wasn't going to be good. Like there's no, I think there is no good way. I mean, I think the way they did in the original Exorcist film was the best way it could possibly be done. And so you could either repeat that exactly, which I think is sort of what happens in the Exorcist TV show, which I watched at the end of the first season. And actually, I remember really enjoying where something very similar happens. Yeah, I heard that was good. Wasn't that, wasn't that good? That TV show wasn't supposed to be good or something? I heard it was pretty it was, decent. Yeah, I think so. But I stopped watching it for season two, and so did everyone else. And that's why it doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> so... I want to hear from Sarah. Come on, Sarah. I made you watch this film. You were dreading it. You had to take a friend to hold your hand while you watched the film. Talk to me. No, no. I actually really like The Exorcist, and I I think it's so effective, and I think it's a masterpiece on lots of different levels. But the reason why I don't like to go to scary movies is because I don't like to be scared. I'm not afraid of seeing gross stuff. I'm not afraid of that kind of stuff, but I just... I don't like to be scared. I don't find that fun. That's not something I take pleasure in at at all. And I know that a lot of people do. I'm just not one of those people. And I think ultimately I was kind of disappointed that I went to this theater to go see this movie that I thought was going to be really scary. And it just wasn't because I was terrified by The Exorcist. I was absolutely terrified by it. I think I agree with everybody, you know, go see The Exorcist and just leave the rest alone. All right. Next episode, uh, terrifying, unsafe roller coasters. We're going to make Sarah Lynn <laughs> go on uh, the most. No. Uh, don't just pick on Sarah Lynn because I'm, I'm exactly the same. I don't like the reason I don't like horror movies is because not enough of them are, are good. And if I'm going to be scared by a movie, it's got to be really, really good to make that worthwhile. And the original Exorcist, that's the reason that I put off watching it, because its reputation, first and foremost, is the scariest movie that's ever been made. And that's so unfair to that movie, because it's not necessarily the scariest movie that's ever made, but it might be the most dramatic or the most like gut-wrenching or the most disturbing. So yeah, the original Exorcist, 
I don't like to be scared by movies and The Exorcist may now be one of my favorite movies. That's how good it is and how worth it the horrible things that it makes you feel are. It's amazing. Don't be an idiot like me. Go and see it. Don't fall down the stairs of opportunity and miss seeing The Exorcist. <laughs> Let's wrap that up. That was a wonderful joke to end up. That was it. What a closing line. <laughs> that was, that was a absolutely like abysmal <laughs> final line. Bye, everybody. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Spooky. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. You can also now get all the bonus content directly through Apple Podcasts by signing up for a paid subscription there, which gets you ad-free episodes and extra talking not only for Pretty Much Pop, but also for my other podcasts, Nakedly Examined Music and Philosophy versus Improv. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.